Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Saving Grace, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Here's Pastor Nick. also bring your attention to one other thing, right? We, this section here, chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, it's really a continuation of the discussion which began in chapter 14, which was all about, again, redefining strength and weakness and how the gospel shapes our relationships and how we relate to other people. But here's one really big difference between chapter 14 and chapter 15 in this regard. Like, so part one that we looked at last week and part two that we look at this week. In chapter 14, Paul uses the word brothers, right? So he talks about how the gospel shapes how we relate to brothers. And here in chapter 15, Paul uses a different word. He uses the word neighbor. Now you can actually follow throughout the whole Bible that these two words, brother and neighbor, are used to refer to two different groups of people throughout the Bible. The the people come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, tell me, who is my neighbor, right? Because we're told to love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, okay, well, define for me, who is my neighbor? And you'll see other times when he talks about if a brother sins against you, here's how you are to react. So here's, here's how that breaks down. Brother, throughout the Bible, refers to other believers, fellow believers, other Christians in our case. And neighbor refers to any and all human beings. And so that's these two categories. But that, what that means is this, that chapter 14 is focused on how we relate to other Christians. That was our study last week when it comes to disagreements and disputable matters and, and things where we don't see eye to eye. But chapter 15 is focused on how we relate to all people and how we're to use the strengths that God has given us to bless and serve them. So what he's teaching us here, again, is something that's radically different. It's countercultural to our day and age. He's teaching us to be outwardly focused people, people who understand that we are on a mission. And our mission isn't just to serve ourselves. It's about something much bigger than us. Now, any mission has to have a motivation. So we see starting in verse 3, Paul shifts from talking about our obligation to talking about our motivation. Verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is both our example and our motivation, right? The eternal Son of God, who is fully deserving of all things. The Bible says that all things exist by him, and all things exist for him. So he's deserving of all things, and yet he did not live to please himself. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. Paul says, the reproaches of those who fell, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here he's quoting from Psalm 69. And by applying this psalm to Jesus, here's what he's doing. Paul's pointing out that Jesus was willing to be mocked, beaten, crucified, killed by those who were the enemies of God. And he did it in order to serve us, in order to serve those around him. In other words, when Jesus came to this earth, when he lived his life, he lived his life in service to other people even though it wasn't comfortable for him, even though it involved pain and hardship and sacrifice, he did it for us because of his love for us. In other words, his life wasn't motivated, wasn't driven by a desire or a seeking for his own comfort or pleasure, but by a radical devotion to the will of God and a desire to serve us, even though it came at great cost to him. So Jesus is both our example and our motivation for living this new way. He compels us to live our lives to serve others in a commitment to doing the will of God. 
What this looks like in practice, for example, means this, that as a Christian, when you walk into a room, you don't come in with the, with the same attitude that you used to, right? You come in with a different attitude. You don't ask when you enter the room, are these the kind of people that I want to be around? Are these the kind of people that I want to be seen with? Are these the kind of people that I would enjoy? Rather, we ask a different question. We come into a room and we ask, how can I build up these people? Who might I be able to serve in some way? It means we don't just seek out people who are able to build us up or pour into us, but we look not only to who can benefit us, we look at people and we're willing to spend time with people who are draining. Have you met those people? Those energy vampires, right? They just suck it right out of you. But he says, no, we're willing to spend time with people who are draining, those who are hard to be around, those who are hard to love. Now, why would we do that? Who would want to do that? The answer is this. We do that because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I love what he says. He says, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect or because he could see no fault in us or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. Ah, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. And so in the same way, with the same purpose, let us receive one another. I've been reading a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Maybe some of you have read it. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. And in that book, he's talking about justice. And what he says is this. I thought it was very good. He says, the true measure of the character of a society cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the disfavored. And that's exactly what this text here in Romans 15 is calling us to. Rather than living to please ourselves, rather than living, looking for who can do what for us, we're called to follow the example of Jesus, fueled by the motivation of Jesus' love and what he's done for us. And we are to live our lives, not to please ourselves, but to do the work of God by serving and building up others. But think about that. What, what does this mean? What does that look like in practice? What does it actually mean in practice to serve and build up others? What does it mean? Does it mean to take care of people's physical needs or does it mean to take care of their spiritual needs? Well, of course, the answer is both, right? The Bible gives us a holistic view of people. We're not just physical beings, nor are we just spiritual beings. But we are physical and spiritual. We are embodied spirits. And so the Bible gives us a holistic approach to serving people and building them up that's both spiritual and physical. So God's desire, and ultimately the reason Jesus came, was so that we who suffer under the curse of sin and death might be set free from the effects of sin and death. Now sin and, and death, the curse that we're under, it has physical effects, and of course it has spiritual ramifications. And so we seek to bring the gospel into people's lives and minister to all of people's needs, both their spiritual needs and their physical needs. But here's one thing that's worth noting in that regard, that, that while the Bible does say that right, we are embodied spirits, so we have physical needs and we have spiritual needs, and they're both important, and to minister to a person means to minister to both. The Bible, we should recognize that the Bible does give priority to spiritual needs, so, for example, the Bible says things like, it would be better to enter into eternal life with only one hand, maimed, than it would be to enter holy well into uh, hell with two hands and holy well, right? Or it says things like, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? And so while we seek to have a holistic approach to serving people and building them up, we do keep this in mind that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, if all we ever give people is physical help, 
if we don't also reach out to their greater need, their spiritual need to be reconciled to God and have their soul redeemed, then, then we have fallen short in helping them. But if, on the other hand, we point people to Jesus, and then even in their physical condition, if their physical condition never improves in this life, they have the hope, they have the guarantee that in the life to come, all that is wrong will be made right. And so we take a holistic approach, but we don't neglect the spiritual side. In verse 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Here in this one verse, Paul tells us three very important things about the Scripture, how we should view the Scripture, what should our attitude be as we think about the Bible. So three things. Number one, he tells us that the Scriptures are applicable for us today. He says everything that was written in the past was written in order to teach us. So whatever part of the Bible you're reading, whether it's, it's a psalm, whether it's a story, whether it's history, understand this, it was written and inspired and recorded by God here in the scriptures in order to teach you. And every bit of it has lessons and applications that we can apply to our lives today. Secondly, the scriptures are centered on Jesus. Paul showed us that by applying Psalm 69 to Jesus and saying, ultimately, this speaks of Jesus. In other words, if you really want to understand the Bible, you need to understand this, that the Bible is not just a bunch of random stories that give us some insight into God. Rather, it is one story which at its heart is all about Jesus. And thirdly, here's what it teaches us about the Bible, that when properly understood, the scriptures increase our sense of hope. So when properly understood, the scriptures increase our sense of hope. Here in the scriptures, what we have, we have God's promises to us about what he is doing and what he will do. And because we know the end of the story now, because we know that God is working even when he seems silent, even when he seems absent, that he's working providentially and sovereignly, it gives us incredible hope in the midst of whatever circumstances we are facing. It enables us to live with so much endurance. We're able to press on even when things are hard. In verses 5 and 6 that we read, we see that Paul prays for the Christians that they might have unity. Two things to note about this prayer. First of all, he mentions that we are unified by following Jesus. So we're unified by following Jesus. And secondly, here's the other thing he tells us, that when we act in unity... As Christians, we bring glory to God. When we act in unity, we bring glory to God. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you have missed any part of this message or past messages, you can find them all at besetfreeradio.com. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Now, verse 7 goes on to tell us that the basis for our unity as Christians is that we have been accepted by Jesus. So when you really come to understand the gospel, it absolutely changes the way that you relate to other people. Because here's why. Because when you know that you've been accepted by Jesus, in spite of your faults, in spite of your sins, it sets you free to accept other people in spite of their sins, in spite of their faults. See, knowing that you're accepted by God, it sets you free also from the feeling that you need to compete with other people or you need to prove yourself that you're, you're better than them or that you, you're competing with them. Some of you, maybe you can relate to that. You're competitive people. You feel like you have this constant need to prove yourself. 
And it makes you feel significant when you can show that you're better than others at certain things. But here's what happens when you come to understand the gospel. When you understand that you're accepted by God in Christ because of Jesus, because of what he did for you, it sets you free from the need to constantly prove yourself and the need to compete with others. You no longer look at others with a need to put other people down so that you can make yourself look better because you are so secure in knowing that God has accepted you in Christ. The message of the gospel is that God knows you fully. He knows everything about you, every secret thought, every secret deed, and yet he loves you completely. You know, many people believe that they can either be fully known or fully loved, but not both, right? Because if someone were to fully know you, everything about you, every secret, every thought you've ever had, surely they couldn't possibly love you. They'd have to reject you. But the message of the gospel is that God, the one who knows you even better than you know yourself, he knows everything about you, every flaw, every failing, and yet in spite of that, he loves you completely. He loves you so much that he became one of us and gave himself for you. And when you really get that, here's what it does. It sets you free because it gives you so much confidence, so much security. You don't have to look down on other people. You don't have to compete with other people. You can be secure in who you are in him. And it sets you free to be unified with other people. Here's the other thing. God's love for us, though, he, he, he loves us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us where we're at. He loves us. He doesn't love us because we are good and perfect, but he loves us in a way that makes us better. He loves us in a way that makes us better. He accepts us as we are and where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He loves us enough to work in our lives, to transform what's broken in us in order to make us into something great and something beautiful. And that's a model for us as well in how we love people because, you know, one of the fears that people have as they read this section that says, hey, don't live to please yourself, live to please other people. They say, well, how, if I do that though, aren't I opening myself up to being a doormat that other people are going to take advantage of me and use me and walk all over me and the, the weaker people will dictate my life. I won't be able to do anything I want because somebody won't like it. And the answer is No. That's not how this is supposed to work. See, we're called to live like Jesus did and love like Jesus has loved us. And what that means is meeting people where they're at, but lifting them up and helping them not to stay where they're at if they're in a bad place, helping them to get stronger and, and to grow. One author put it this way. He said, A genuine concern for the weak will mean an attempt to lead them out of their scruples so that they too can be strong. So genuine concern for the weak means helping them become strong and move away from those weaknesses. In verses 8 through 12 then, Paul goes on and he quotes four Old Testament passages which all talk about God's plan, how God's plan has always been throughout all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Bible. It's always been to include Gentiles, which are non-Jews, in his chosen people. Now, we saw back in chapters 9 through 11 when we talked about understanding Israel, one of the big questions that the Christians in Rome had is a question that many people today also have and struggle with, which is this. How is it that like in the Old Testament, it seems like the Jews are God's chosen people, but now we look around the world and there are a lot of Jews who don't follow Jesus. Many of them are atheists. You know, many reject Jesus if they're not atheists. And many Christians are, are not from Jewish background. And so how does that work if the Jews are God's chosen people and now it seems that they're doing something else? And Paul is reminding them that throughout the Old Testament, God consistently promised that his plan 
was to save people from all nations. The Jews, like we've been talking about throughout this study, they were blessed not just for their own sake. That was the mistake they made. They thought they were blessed just for their own sake. No, he says, I blessed you so that you can be a blessing, so that through you, all nations of the earth can be blessed. And so here's an interesting thing about these four passages that Paul quotes here in this section. They come from all three parts of the Old Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament in the Jewish mind is broken up into three parts. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings, which are like the Psalms and the Proverbs. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. And we see that these verses come, they're taken from each of those three sections. So verses 9 and 11, the Old Testament quotations come from the Psalms. In verse 10, it comes from the law. And in verse 11, it comes from the prophets. And so the, the point is this, to show us that all of the Old Testament testified to God's plan of salvation for people from all over the world, not only for the Jewish people. In other words, God didn't change his plan at some point. This has been the plan all along. And finally, in this third section, we see the reciprocation, verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So in verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 13, we see that there are a couple of words that are repeated over and over. They're repeated, they're used. And what we see here is that there's this kind of reciprocal cycle. Now we all know what it's like to be in a vicious cycle, right? Maybe you've been in a vicious cycle in your life where one bad thing fuels another bad thing, which fuels another bad thing, and just in this downward spiral. But what we have here is really just the opposite of that. What we have here is a beautiful upward cycle of hope where one thing fuels the next that spirals upward, fueling itself as it increases in hope and joy. Verse 4 talks about how Scripture gives us hope. And that hope gives us endurance. The hope gives us the motivation and the strength to press on and keep going. And verse 5 talks about how God gives us endurance through encouragement. Verse 13 talks about joy and peace and believing so that we can have even more hope. And again, it's this upward spiral, this beautiful cycle where one thing fuels the next. We read the scriptures, they give us hope, so we serve others, which gives us joy. The scriptures give us joy. It's this upward cycle as we do these things that lead us upward until the point where we're overflowing with hope and joy and peace. And remember, this is all seated in a section which is calling us to live in a radically countercultural way. Instead of being self-focused, we're called to be serving others and carrying out God's mission as Jesus did for us. Now, being self-focused, it's such a part of our human nature. But here in our society in America, particularly here in the West, we live in perhaps the most radically individualistic society in the world, perhaps the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. You can see it, for example, like in the titles of magazines, like if you look over the past 60 years. First, we start out with Life Magazine. Okay, great start, right? Life Magazine, that's, that's what we're doing. We're doing life. Okay, then next we had Time Magazine. Now, time is part of life, but it's not all of life. And then after that, we had People Magazine. Now, people are part of time, which is part of life, but it's not all of time, and it's not all of life. And then we moved on from having People Magazine to having Us Magazine. Now, Us is part of people, but it's not all of people. And then we moved on from Us Magazine to having Self Magazine, which is part of us, but not all of us. And you can see this trajectory that we've been on where we're moving more and more and more towards this individualism and toward this me-focused society. And in spite of that, the Bible is giving us this radical call to live like Jesus and be motivated by Jesus, not to please ourselves, but to lift up others with the strength that God has given us. 
Now, again, some of you might look at this and you might say, well, this sounds very noble, but I'm not sure I want to be a noble martyr, right? Like, I'm not sure I want to live that way. I'm not sure I want to miss out on fun, right? Like, I'm afraid that if I live that way, I'll be a, a noble martyr and I'll be able to pat myself on the back for, you know, sacrificing for the sake of others, but I won't be happy if I just live my life in service of others. I, I mean, isn't self-care, isn't self-love, isn't that stuff important? I mean, where does all that fit into this? There's an interesting passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's just after the Lord's Supper. They've finished their meal. Jesus has shared with them that the time has come. That within hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be taken off. And he's going to be crucified and put to death. After this Last Supper, as there's this kind of somber mood, the disciples are not happy to hear this. Jesus says, you know what, let me pray for you guys. And the prayer that Jesus prayed, you can imagine how much that prayer would have just been burned into the minds of those people who heard their Savior pray over them that night after the Last Supper before he was crucified. And there in that prayer, before they go for their final walk where Jesus is going to be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays for them. And in his prayer, one of the things he says is this. He says, Father, these disciples of mine, I want them to have the same joy that I have. And the reason I have that joy, he says, is because you have given me your mission. And so in order that they might have the joy that I have, I am passing on to them the mission that you gave me. See, what Jesus says there in John chapter 17 is really important for how we view our lives and how we live. What he's saying there is this, that joy is inextricably tied to and dependent on mission. In other words, you cannot have joy unless you have a mission. And if you have a mission, then you will have joy. But you must have a mission which is bigger than yourself. And see, so many people in this world, they don't have that. They don't have any mission, anything that's worth living for and dying for that's more than themselves. It's more than living for their own personal fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure. And as a result, so many people are lacking in joy. See, here's the irony of life. Everyone wants to be happy. Of course we want to be happy. We should want to be happy. Everyone wants to have joy in their life. But here's the irony of happiness and joy. It's not something you can get by pursuing it directly. If you go out this afternoon and say, okay, from now on, I'm going to pursue making myself happy, you will end up miserable. So many people have done it. Just look, read the books, look for it yourself. The irony is this, the more you live for yourself, the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. But if you have a mission, something that really matters, something that's truly worth living for and dying for, something that's bigger than just yourself and pleasing yourself, if you pursue that, if you live for it, even to the point of sacrificing for it, then you will have joy. See, there's no mission that is more important, that is more worthy of giving your life for than the mission for which Jesus gave his life for, the the mission which living wholeheartedly for the mission of God, Jesus' own mission, which he has imparted to us that we might have his same joy as we pursue his same mission. And so the idea here is this, that the hope that we have in Jesus, it drives us to take up the mission we've been given by Jesus to serve others, which in turn causes us to have even more joy. And that joy, what does it do? It drives us back to Jesus, the source of our hope. And that hope pushes us back towards the mission, which results in even more joy, and so on and so on in this upward, upward reciprocal spiral of joy and hope until it's just overflowing out of our lives and it can flow towards other people. Don't you want that? I want that. 
I know that I do. So today, in conclusion, let me just encourage you in this. Don't live to please yourself, but instead look to Jesus and what he has done for you. And let that be your motivation and your example. That you might use your strengths that God has given you to build other people up so that they might become strong and experience life abundantly and everlasting. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it testifies of the gospel, Lord, the good news of what you have done for us. Jesus, thank you that you did not seek your own pleasure when you lived, but you lived for us. You gave yourself for us, sacrificing, Lord, may we live for your mission in that same way. Lord, that we might have your same joy. Lord, forgive us for those areas where we have uh, just lived to please ourselves, where we have looked to ourselves, Lord, and tried to make ourselves happy by, by trying to go after it directly and do what pleases us. Lord, may we see that joy is something that is only achieved by having a mission that really matters. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us the one mission which truly matters. May we live it out for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have two in-person services on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 11 a.m. And both services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. If you would like to support Be Set Free Radio or the ministry of Whitefields Church in Longmont with a donation, you can send a check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or give a financial gift online at whitefieldschurch.com.